Take your Bibles once again, if you would please, and turn with me as we continue our series through Luke's Gospel. This morning, we are in Luke chapter 7, and we want to look together at verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 7. Verses 1 to 10. You'll find an outline for our time on page 5 in your bulletin, and it'll also be on the screen that is in front of you. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to them, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we would echo the words of the hymn that we just sang, Speak. O Lord, we pray that we would have a greater understanding of who you are, of your power and your compassion as a result of our time together this morning. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us know the story of Eric Liddell, made popular in the movie Chariots of Fire. Well, after he ran to Olympic glory, he served as a missionary in China. He went with what was then known as the China Inland Mission. He remained in China when the Japanese invaded and occupied large parts of that nation during World War II. Expats were sent to hotels to be held, particularly expats who were from belligerent nations, so Brits and Americans were often sent to these hotels so that the Japanese could keep an eye on them. And on one occasion, Liddell was uh, staying in a hotel, and all the guests were told to bring their luggage downstairs because the Japanese authorities were going to search through it. Liddell brought his luggage down. The Japanese soldier doing the searches opened his suitcase, and there at the very top was a New Testament in plain sight for everybody to see. The Japanese soldier looked at him and asked, You Christian? Liddell nodded his head. The soldier 
nodded his head as well, said, that's good, turned, and walked away. Later in his memoirs, Liddell talked about how shocked he was, not just that the New Testament didn't earn him any kind of uh, punishment, but, as he wrote, who would expect an imperial Japanese soldier to be a Christian? Well, that was about as likely as what we find in our text for this morning. A faith that is so robust that Jesus himself marvels at it. And it's not a Jewish rabbi. It's not a Jewish scribe or a Pharisee. No, it's a Roman centurion who possesses this marvelous faith. On page five in the bulletin, you see the outline, and you see there the big idea. The big idea, in other words, in one sentence, what we hope the sermon is about is this. The word of Jesus reveals the character of God. The word of Jesus reveals the character of God. Three points that we would make this morning. The first one is this, location, location, location. Understanding a little bit of the context of this is particularly helpful. And it's particularly helpful because if you grew up in church, this is a pretty familiar story. We've all heard the story of the Roman centurion and the faith that he has in Jesus and how his servant is healed. And the problem there is that familiarity uh, doesn't breed deeper interest. Familiarity doesn't breed a kind of passion for whatever it is that's going on. No, as the cliche goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And so because we're familiar with the story, if we don't take our time and locate ourselves properly, we'll miss what an astounding and wonderful thing this really is. So first, let's find our place textually. You may recall that in Luke chapter 6, uh, Luke records for us what we call the sermon on uh, excuse, yeah the sermon on the plain. Matthew calls it the sermon on the mount. And if you will take your uh, if you take your Bible, turn back just a page if you would to Luke chapter six verse twenty seven, because we want to hear the words of Jesus, the words that he is presenting that he gives as a king, talking about the nature of his kingdom. Here is a divine king giving his followers a kingdom manifesto. So in chapter 6, verse 27, this is what Jesus says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, please understand, it would have been entirely possible to have been in the crowd when Jesus was preaching that sermon and to think to yourself, yeah, Jesus, okay. That sounds great. Actually, let me take that back. That sounds awful because you've clearly never met my enemy. You clearly don't know the people who I don't like and they don't like me and we just don't get along. And it would have been particularly striking for a Jewish audience to hear this, understanding 
that their nation at this point is occupied by Roman soldiers. They didn't invite them there. They didn't ask them there. They didn't vote them in. No, the Jews are a conquered people, and they are living under the fist of an occupying army. The Roman centurion then, in a very real sense, is the enemy of Jesus and of every Jew living in Israel. He is the very manifestation of the occupying force. It isn't just a hatred for Rome in general as a concept, but here is a man who leads as a centurion. He leads, in good times, a hundred soldiers, probably more like 60 to 85 at this particular point in time. But he's the one who enforces the rule of Rome. He's the one who makes sure when the crooked tax collector is charging you much more than he should, he's the one who makes sure that you pay. Whenever there is unrest, he's the one, he and his soldiers, who are called out to put it down. In other words, if you are a God-loving, nation-loving Jew, you have no reason whatsoever to think highly of the centurion. He is your enemy. And so what we see in this particular text is Jesus not just telling us to love our neighbor, but Jesus actually showing us what loving your enemy might actually look like. What it would mean to pray for those who persecute you. What it would mean to seek their good and their well-being. Jesus, uh, in that sense, would have made a pretty poor parent. Because the art of parenting, as I think we all know, those of us who are parents, is that whole do as I say, not as I do bit. We learn that pretty early on. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not going to tell us to love our enemies and then not give us an example of what that's going to look like. No, Jesus reveals the character of God to us. God is not yes and no. God is not somehow schizophrenic in his character, in his nature. No, when the Son of God says, love your enemies, the actions of the Son of God will show us exactly what that looks like. That brings us then to the cultural setting. The cultural setting is that there's a very strange group of people who come to Jesus. There's a very weird alliance that is at work. We're told that there's a centurion in verse 2 who has a servant who's sick to the point of death. And so the centurion, rather than sending soldiers to Jesus, rather than sending members of his household to Jesus, we're told in verse 3 that he sent him elders of the Jews. Now, let's just stop for a moment and realize um, just how unusual this was. The elders of the Jews did not want anything to do with the Roman occupying force. If the elders of the Jews represented the sort of moral leadership of the community, the Jewish garrison there and the centurion would have represented the political leadership that they were under. 
And these two sides had a very uneasy truce. In fact, no good rabbi, and Jesus was, among other things, a rabbi, no devout rabbi would have had anything to do with a Roman centurion. And yet we're told, as we're going to see, this is not your typical Roman centurion. But the idea that a Roman centurion and the Jewish elite would be on the same page to approach Jesus, who's a guy at this point they're not really sure what to do with. He's performing all these wonderful signs. He's, he's performing all of these miracles. Jesus teaches with great authority. But what do we do with this guy? I mean, he's, he's not of any particular school that we know of. We can't really control him. We're not sure what to do with him. And yet the need brought about by this sickness is so great that these very, very strange bedfellows reach out and they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, can you heal this man's servant? Earlier in Luke's gospel, Luke gives us a list of Jesus' disciples and less noted for us when he preached on it, this was a pretty diverse group. This was not; uh, These were not all guys walking around make, wearing uh, Make Israel Great Again hats. These were not guys who were all progressives, right? They weren't all like Matthew the tax collector. They weren't all in Rome's back pocket. This was a diverse group. It was a diverse group in terms of how they viewed the Romans. And we know that one of the men who became a Jesus disciple was a man named Simon. And we're told by Luke that he's actually known as Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were the original mega crowd. In fact, they were ready to take up arms. They were ready to do whatever they could to get rid of the dirty, stinking, filthy Romans. And so can you imagine... Now, this is in the second year of Jesus' ministry. Simon has been following Jesus around for a year. Uh, we haven't been told, we have no account in any of the Gospels that says Simon the Zealot comes to Jesus and goes, hey, I think I might be wrong on this whole Israel first policy. I think I understand that God's plan was for the nations, that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through our descendant Abraham. We don't have any of those kinds of conversations. So can you imagine Simon the Zealot, in his light blue, make Israel great again cap, having to follow Jesus as he's making his way to the centurion's house. I wonder, do we serve a Jesus who doesn't necessarily fit all of our political or nationalistic categories and paradigms? Do we have a Jesus who cares more about the condition of our heart than who cares about the way that we vote or what we get riled up about or what we get angry about? Now, listen, I'm not saying that we should call things that are evil good, and I'm not saying that in somehow uh, that in some of these issues there's not a right and there's not a wrong, but 
we do need to understand that one could be entirely right in one's politics and not be born again. You could believe things that are good and just and according to the Constitution and all the other things that you would want to say. You could be a hot, red-blooded, patriotic American who carries around a copy of the Declaration of Independence in your wallet and still not know Jesus. And if all Jesus does is rubber stamp what you believe politically, what you have is a Jesus of your own making, not the Jesus of the Bible. Simon the Zealot would have been following this crowd so angry he couldn't even speak. He would be looking for something sharp or something smooth and heavy that he could throw as soon as he got to the centurion's house. Jesus is revealing not just to us, but to his disciples, the very character of God. Secondly, we see a marvelous faith. We see a marvelous faith. Now, not only do we learn in this text something about the character of God, but we also learn something about the character of the centurion. This is not your run-of-the-mill Roman centurion. The Romans were well known as folks who, uh, once they had you on the ground and once they had their boot on the back of your neck, they were going to keep it there and they were going to make sure that you understood that you were under their authority, that they had conquered you. And yet this centurion is nothing like that. One of the reasons that we have such a strange confederacy of folks coming forward and asking Jesus to help is we understand why in verse 4, you have the Jewish leaders, the elders of the Jews saying, and this is stunning, He's worthy to have you do this for him. Why? He loves our nation and he built us our synagogue. This is not a Roman centurion who's on some sort of power trip. This is not a Roman centurion who once his boot is on the back of your neck, wants to push as hard as he possibly can. Now we learn that this is a man who's decent. He cares about the well-being of the servant in his household. In fact, we're told that he's, the servant is highly valued by the centurion. Now, we don't know if that means he likes him as a person or that he's really valuable within the household. But regardless, the centurion cares about his well-being. We see that he's humble. He sends a delegation to Jesus' house before he gets there and says, hey, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. We see his basic kindness. The centurion is a man who's willing to help out those whom he is occupying. He's a man of means, and he's not afraid to be generous with what he has. He built them, their synagogue. Most importantly, 
this man, this centurion, this one who possesses marvelous faith, is a man who understands authority. He knows that Jesus has the authority to speak a word and to heal his servant. He knows, as a man of authority himself, he knows that all Jesus needs to do is say a word, and the servant will be healed. Jesus, I don't, I don't need you to come to my house. I trust you. I know that you're able to do this thing. Oftentimes when we talk about faith, we think somehow that what is important about faith is how much of it we have or how much of it we feel. Right? Like today, I know today is going to be a rough day, so I got to kind of I got to kind of talk to myself and I got to I got to somehow suck up more faith. Well, what the centurion teaches us is it's not about, quote unquote, the faith that I possess. It's about the object of my faith. See, this isn't just about trusting in the fact that I have enough faith. No, this is about trusting in the one in whom I am believing and trusting and turning to. What is remarkable about his faith is it's remarkable the extent to which he trusts the object of his faith. He trusts that Jesus will actually be able to do this thing that no one else can do. So I wonder this morning, as we think about our faith, is it something that we think we need to sort of screw up and we need to somehow, uh, we need to talk ourselves into it, we need to give ourselves almost a kind of pep talk you could have more faith. You're a person of great faith. Or do we understand that what's really important is the object of our faith? Not that we think we have a lot of it, but rather that our faith is directed in the proper place. The object of our faith is trustworthy. That we believe and we trust that Jesus is who he says he is. I've shared this illustration before, but it's, it's such a great uh, illustration to talk about the nature of faith that it's, it's hard not to just share it again. Uh, there was a great trapeze artist in the 1920s and the 1930s, and he uh, operated for the most part in England. Well, he came to the United States and started his tour of the U.S. by walking across Niagara Falls. And there were all sorts of newspaper folks gathered around. And so he made a great show of getting out and walking across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. And then he came back, but he came back with a wheelbarrow. And about three-fourths of the way through, he amazed the crowd when he basically did a handstand over the top of the wheelbarrow, pulled it over the top of him, and continued walking. And he said, hey, here's my question. for Everybody applauded, and he got back to the end. And for his finale, he said, okay. Here's what I need to know. How many of you believe I could get across the falls with an individual in the wheelbarrow? And of course, all of the media were like, yeah, that's good. The guy can do a flip. He can. He's like, okay, who's ready to get in the wheelbarrow? 
Friends, that's faith. The centurion has marvelous faith because he's ready to get into the wheelbarrow. He understands that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And he doesn't need some great show. He understands his authority. He knows that with just a word spoken anywhere, Jesus can heal his servant. And that is marvelous faith. So what have we learned? We say that the word of Jesus reveals the character of God to us. So what exactly about God have we learned? What about Jesus have we learned? Well, we've seen that Jesus is this wonderful combination, not only of power, but also of compassion. That Jesus is this wonderful mix. It's not like he's 50% power and 50% compassion. No, Jesus is 100% of both of those things. We've all been confronted with situations in which we find ourselves going, man, that sounds awful. I wish I could do something for you. I wish I could help. But we can't. And we can't because it's not within our power to be able to fix whatever it is that's going on. It's not within our power to be able to address whatever thing that's happening that needs to be addressed. Sometimes, however, we have what folks call compassion fatigue. Yeah, I could help, <laughs> but I don't want to. I'm tired. You asked me to help you two weeks ago. I could help you, but, you know, I've helped people before, and then, yeah, sometimes they just, they... I, yeah, no, I could help you, but I, 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 yeah. I love there's a, a scene from Friends in which Phoebe's like, oh, that sounds great. I wish I could come, but I really don't want to. We're that way sometimes. There are times in which we wish we could help, but it's beyond our power. And then there are times in which we could help, but we choose not to. It's interesting that the people who are going to clamor for his crucifixion, namely the elders of the Jews, and the people who are actually going to execute him, namely the Romans, that's the folks we're talking about here. And Jesus shows both the power of God and the compassion of God when he heals the centurion's servant. We also understand what we've seen to be the theme, the melodic line of Luke's gospel as a whole, namely that the gospel is for everyone. The healing that comes about is not to a great man. It's not to some great Lord. It's not to a king. It's not to, uh, it's not to the Roman centurion himself. No, it's to the centurion's servant. He's a no one. In fact, to remind us of just how insignificant this individual is, Luke doesn't even give us his name. And so for the nameless servant of a Gentile oppressor, God's power and God's compassion heal him. 
Why? Because from beginning to end, Luke wants us to understand the power of God to save is available to everyone. The gospel is for everybody. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for really good people. It's not for people of a particular social standing. No. The gospel is for everybody. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, got a name, nameless. Doesn't matter. The good news of the redemptive work of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is for everyone. But you see, there's something else that this particular story does. We learn, because we, we've read this story and we take great comfort in this story, and we do have a particular amount of confidence in this story. And I think a great number of us have even gone so far as to pray for people that we know and love and care for because they're in need of physical healing. And we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if God would only speak it, that person would be healed. And so we pray and we trust and we ask and we pray again and we pray some more and we pray again. And then the person for whom we are praying dies. And we're left to wonder. And we're left to struggle with this notion that, wait, Jesus, you can speak a word and heal the Roman centurion. Why couldn't you speak a word and heal this person that I love and care about? Well, we need to understand that all of Jesus' healings and all of Jesus' miracles, they're not simply about here and now. All of Jesus' miracles, all of Jesus' healings, in fact, even the resurrection of Jesus himself, they all point us forward. This isn't just about this itinerant Jewish rabbi who has the power to heal people. No, this is about the very Son of God declaring to us through word and deed that there is a kingdom that is coming. And in that kingdom that is to come, we need to listen to what the Bible has to say to us about what it's going to be like. Listen, if you would, to... Revelation chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, the truth of this particular text is, yes, Jesus heals. 
whether in this life or in the life to come, Jesus heals. He saves and he heals. And through his death and through his resurrection and through his coming again, the old things are passing away. This story points us not just to the faith of the centurion and not just to the character of God and not just to the fact that we probably have the melodic line of Luke's gospel right when we say the gospel is for everyone. No, this text points us forward to the day in which death and disease and tears and mourning crying, those things are no more because God has made all things new. As we come to the table this morning, we need to recognize the beautiful paradox that's here for us. We remember not just that Jesus' blood was shed, but that his body was broken And it's only through the brokenness of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be made whole. And so this morning, the Lord invites us. He asks us to come and he asks us to remember and to partake of the one whose body was broken. And through his broken body and through his shed blood, he makes us whole. But Paul also tells us that we're to do this until Christ comes again in power and in glory. In other words, there's another another table that's yet to come. I am more and more convinced the longer that I walk with Jesus, and uh, I'm a food guy anyway, and so uh, I've watched the whole Stanley Tucci goes to Italy thing like nine times. Uh, I'm that much of a food guy, right? You know what I'm looking forward to when we get to heaven? Yeah, it'd be great to see grandparents and people who've gone before us and those things. I'm looking forward to that feast. I'm looking forward to that time in which it's like, hey, I got nothing but time here. And I'm not worried about death. I'm not worried about dying. I'm not worried about what all this bacon I'm consuming is doing to my cholesterol. I'm not worried that I might be drinking too much wine at this feast. No. No, Jesus saves us for a future. And he saves us for a feast. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the future that is ours. Thank you that the power that Jesus displays and the compassion that he shows shows us your character. It tells us something about the nature of the gospel. And it tells us of what is ours in eternity. We bless you for all those things. For we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.